Well, welcome. Uh, thanks for everyone who's joining us this afternoon. I want to welcome you to a lecture sponsored by the Institute of World Politics, and it's on strategic and economic implications of the anti-Russian sanctions. For those of you who are new to uh, the IWP experience, uh, IWP is a graduate school of national security, intelligence, and international affairs. We offer a doctoral program, seven master's degree programs, including two online and 18 certificate uh, for graduate study. If you're interested in learning a little bit more about uh, IWP, please uh, visit us at our website, iwp.edu. And if you want to support IWP, you can do that at, uh, and our work here at the Institute, uh, you can do that at iwp.edu forward slash donate. Today, it's my pleasure to tell you that we're going to be hearing from Mr. Gary Brody. He's going to be delivering a lecture entitled The Strategic and Economic Implications of Anti-Russian Sanctions. And Mr. Brody has spent uh, three decades in the financial sector, especially in the hedge fund business. Most recently, he was managing partner uh, and senior portfolio manager for Silver, Silver Arrow Investments Management. Sorry about that. Uh, and they concentrated on long-only hedge funds with uh, options-based hedging. And in 2020, he launched Deep Knowledge Investing, a research firm that uh, works with portfolio um, managers, uh, RIAs, family offices, and individuals to help them earn higher returns on the equity portion of their portfolios. So it's a pleasure. Again, uh, Mr. Brody has a lot of real-world experience to offer. And over to you, Mr. Brody. Terrific. Thank you so much for having me. And um, before we get started, do you mind if I just take a minute to compliment you and the staff there? Um, I, I think what you guys are doing at IWP is fantastic. But what I would really love to do is tell you about an experience I had last year. I was invited Please. to be a guest lecturer at a fantastic university and to speak to the, the finance program there. And um, before I appeared on the Zoom chat, I was sent um, basically a form that the university wanted me to sign that basically uh, where I would promise never to say anything that would upset anybody at the university. And I, of course, responded that I'd be happy to sign that if the president of the university would sign a similar form saying no one at his university would ever say anything that I found upsetting. Um, now, when I sat down with the students to talk, I gave them the, the appropriate trigger warning. It was 2021. We have invested successfully based on war, uh, natural disasters, failed US policy, uh, bad policies, we've invested based on uh, tragedies. And so I told the students, you can be assured that everything I'm about to say is going to be disturbing. And if that's a problem, you can log off now. To their credit, uh, every one of these young people stayed for the talk and they engaged with a great deal of intellect and enthusiasm and to compliment IWP about is much of what I have to say is unfortunately disturbing. And uh, nobody at IWP has tried to moderate my remarks in any way. Nobody has told me what I can and can't say. Nobody's tried to ensure that none of this is uh, upsetting to people. Um, I want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for the intellectual freedom and for the trust in your community. 
And uh, also that means that to the extent that I say anything wrong, on my own responsibility. No, thank you so much. And, and one of the uh, important things from our founder, Dr. Linchowski, uh, the chancellor, uh, he mentions often in his talks, seeing the world as it is and talking about the world as it is, is an important part of graduate school. It's an important, important part of the analysis and education. We can talk about how we want to change the world and we can plan for how we want to change the world. But um, it's important to understand and see the world how it is because you're never going to be able to enact good policies or see things, you know, do things clearly if you can't at least, you know, see how, see the world how it is. And, you know, we can always hope and, you know, try to change things, but, uh, and plan for that. But the first step is actually doing, uh, analysis that, you know, how the world really is, what are the real issues? And that's something that he, um, has instilled, I think, in you know part of the school mission. So, thank you. I, I think that's a great point. So today, I, I want to talk to your community about three things. I would love for people to understand why a strong, stable currency is necessary—not just a good thing, but necessary for us to be a free, prosperous people—and why it's also a national security concern. I'd like people to understand what the Federal Reserve, the White House, and Congress are doing to destroy the dollar as a strong and stable currency. And then I wanna talk about the anti-Russian sanctions and explain that while I think Washington means well and has good intentions, um, the sanctions were not well-designed and rather than hurting the Russians are actually hurting the United States in a way that also is a foreign policy and national security concern. And so that's what I'd like to focus on today. And hopefully by the end of this, we'll have a better understanding of the topic. Right. So to get started, um, the original point here is that a stable currency that can't be debased is a requirement for a free and prosperous society. Um, and just think about it for a second. If, if rulers, if politicians, if the people in charge can debase the currency, they can steal any value that you've saved, any value that you've created and violate your property rights. And so without a stable currency, Citizens have no ability and no incentive to start businesses, preserve value, save and invest for the next generation. Um, inflation that everybody thinks is normal and fine is actually theft. And so I know, you know, people don't always love to talk about statistics. So, of course, I'm going to start with that and probably lose half the audience right away. But people tend to have a work life of about 40 years or so. So the U.S. Federal Reserve has a 2% inflation target. I'd like all of you to know that if we have 2% inflation for 40 years, you will lose 55% of your purchasing value during your working life. The money that you save when you start working, you're going to lose more than half of that value. Now, currently, the U.S. Department of Labor Statistics says our inflation rate is about 8.5%. We think that number is inaccurate, which is my polite way of saying it's a lie. We think the real number is double that, but let's just say that they're right. Eight and a half percent. Over 40 years, people will lose 96% of their purchasing power. So the way the system is designed with fiat currency, and fiat simply means government-controlled currency, not backed by anything. What's our currency backed by? You know the answer, Dr. Glancy. It's the full faith, faith. and credit, mm -hmm. right? Faith. So 
uh, you know, for those of you who have faith in the U.S. government, fantastic. Your dollars are, I suppose, secure. But for those of us who are seeing inflation at eight and a half percent, or in our case, we think much higher, you're going to lose 96% of your value in your working life. And that is theft. Um, there's an author that I like, and I, I apologize in advance. I'm going to mispronounce his name. It's Seifedon uh, Amus. And he recently wrote a book called The Bitcoin Standard. And what he wrote is, is very important. He wrote, money is the information and measurement system of any economy. And sound money is what allows trade, investment, and entrepreneurship to proceed on a solid basis, whereas unsound money throws these processes into disarray. Sound money is also an essential element of a free society as it provides for an effective bulwark against despotic government. So this is what we're talking about, a government that can, without force, take your property rights can be despotic. And this is how governments can wage war. It's how they can take value from their citizens. Part of being a free and prosperous people is sound money. And our money used to be backed by gold. It's now backed by, as you know, faith and credit. Um, and in my opinion, that's not good enough. Um, since the United States replaced the gold-backed dollar with the petrodollar, which is what happened in the early 1970s, the United States has hollowed out its manufacturing base, and we've made the decision to import cheap foreign goods rather than produce them here. And because of the rest of the world needs dollars to buy oil, the primary export of the United States is actually dollars. That's what we make now. We make dollars, we export them, and... I, Dr. Glancy, you know the answer to this. How many countries in the world need oil? It's a strategic good, so all of them do. That's right. Every single one of them. And so every country in the world needs to buy dollars. That's what we're exporting. So what I'd like people to understand here is that the strength of the dollar and its use as the international reserve currency, this is a national security issue. World leadership and the ability to influence other countries uh, without applying military force, tends to belong to countries with the greatest economic strength. And a strong military tends to be a function of a strong economy rather than the other way around, right? Countries with strong economies have great military strength, uh, but having a very strong military doesn't mean that you can produce goods and services that the rest of the world will want to buy. Um, and I can give you three fantastic examples of this, and I know your students who have fantastic grounding in economic history will know this, but for everyone else, um, let's think about the Roman Empire. It, it didn't fall because Rome lacked strong, brave soldiers. It fell because of overspending finance by currency debasement, um, and, and they just printed more currency, and the Roman version of that was reducing the amount of gold and silver in their coins until eventually nobody wanted to hold them anymore. Let's go back to World War II. The United States and its allies were victorious in World War II, not because Germany and Japan and Italy uh, didn't have brave, disciplined soldiers. The Japanese were prepared to fight to the absolute last man. What the United States had was an ability to produce effectively unlimited amounts of weapons, tanks, planes, jeeps. Uh, we could just outproduce everybody. And then in an example that I know is a key one to your founder, to the IWP's founder, 
we won the Cold War, not, not in battle. We didn't fire any shots. The United States did not use its military against Russia. Russia didn't use their military against us. Uh, we won by creating an economy that was strong enough that we could outspend the Soviet Union. And so now what we're producing is dollars. So anything that reduces the value of the US dollar is effectively a national security concern. Um, if the dollar can't maintain its status as the world's reserve currency, it's going to reduce demand. And a weaker dollar will reduce the ability of the United States to influence the policy of other countries without having to deploy the military. Um, and worth pointing out, there are a number of rival countries, uh, Russia and China among them, where because they have nuclear weapons, deploying the military to confront them directly is not an option. So our only options are soft power or economic power, convincing people that it will be too expensive to engage in conflict with us. Uh, so let's move on and talk about how the current US monetary policy is already contributing to the erosion of the credibility of the dollar. Um, if we go back through history, the two big events here are the creation of the Federal Reserve just over 100 years ago, and the United States coming off of the gold standard in the early 1970s. These two events allowed the United States to create unlimited amounts of currency with nothing back, backing these dollars. And so one of the key reasons why gold is so effective as money is because it can't be created through other means, right? We can't just go out and create gold. It, it's a very difficult and lengthy process to mine it. And I think um, the current gold production is something in the neighborhood of one and a half or 2% of the existing stock. So what that means is that if you have gold backed money, the amount of additional currency that you can print every year outside of creation of goods and services is about one and a half or 2%. But that's not where we are right now. Right now, our currency is backed only by faith and credit and 80% of all dollars in existence have been created in the past two and a half years. So everyone take a minute and think about that, right? Four out of every $5 that exists have been created just since the start of COVID. The Federal Reserve literally at the push of a button created $6 trillion of currency. But the problem is we didn't create $6 trillion of value. We didn't create $6 trillion of GDP. And so what we had was a government that was creating dollars without creating value, was handing out money, which, you know, look, we understand the lockdowns were horrible for people and people needed that money to get through. We're not insensitive to that. But the problem is we had an increase in the amount of currency at the same time that we had people that not only were disincentivized from working, but we're told you can't work, you can't go to work. And so inflation gets defined as more money facing, uh, sorry, chasing fewer goods. And that's where we were. And so that's what we're talking about when we talk about debasement of the currency. Just like the ancient Roman emperors uh, debased their currency by putting less gold and less silver in their coins, the United States has debased its currency supply by printing more dollars at the same time that we prevented people from working and creating value. And 
so let's talk for a minute about the implications of that. So uh, Dr. Glancy, when you talk to your students about the federal debt, what kind of numbers do you use when you talk to them? Um, usually the uh, official numbers. So I think it's gone up to, uh, what is it, in the 20 to $30 trillion or so? Yeah, you, that's, that's exactly right. And those are the numbers people talk about. The, this is the on-balance sheet debt. When people refer to the debt of the U.S. government, it's a little over $30 trillion, just like Dr. Glancy said. And the, this is the official number that people talk about. And so you think, okay, well, you know, we have an economy of about that level. Interest rates are low. We can afford this. This isn't really a problem. And, and that's how people think about it. And what I would suggest is that the conventional thinking on this issue is not only wrong, but dangerously wrong. And, and I'll be happy to explain. Um, so while this 30 plus trillion dollars is an incredible number that doesn't represent all of the liabilities of the United States, we have off balance sheet liabilities, which is a fancy financial way of saying that we have obligations to our people like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, pensions. Once we include all of that, the real debt of the United States, depending on the assumptions you use, is somewhere in the neighborhood of $250 trillion. That is a quarter of a quadrillion dollars, right? And so what I will suggest to all of you is what can't be paid won't be paid. So as, as a simple way of explaining this, because sometimes the numbers get overwhelming for people, Dr. Glancy, let's imagine for a minute that you and I uh, make a bet together uh, on the Washington Senators game, right? The next one. And so you being from Washington, you're going to bet they'll win. I'll bet they'll lose. And let's say we bet a billion dollars, one billion dollars, and um, we get attorneys involved and everything is notarized and the senators win their game. And I acknowledge you've won the bet and I've lost the bet. So my question for you, Dr. Glancy, are you now a billionaire? No. Nope. That's right. Because I don't have a billion dollars. Right? If, if you want to make that bet with Elon Musk, you'd be a billionaire. But in the case of me, I don't have a billion dollars. So we could all, everybody on this call could agree, Dr. Glancy's won the bet. We could all agree the contract specifies that I owe him a billion dollars, but what can't be paid won't be paid. And so there are really two things that the United States government can do, because I, I think everybody, everybody listening to this, I think we can all agree that nobody's going to be able to pay a quarter of a quadrillion dollars. It's just not that there isn't that much money in the world. There's not that much economic value in the world. So one of two things will happen. We'll either go the route of Argentina and Greece and we'll default and we'll simply wipe out the, the value of our debt. We'll wipe out our faith and credit and say to people, I'm sorry, we're not going to pay you because we can't pay you now. I don't think that's likely to happen, but that's one possibility. The second possibility is a stealth default. And so what a stealth default looks like is the United States government engineers so much inflation that we pay our bills, uh, but they're not worth anything. And so imagine a situation where you're on social security and maybe your monthly check, I'm making this number up, is $3,000. Um, 
and right now, $3,000 could buy you a decent standard of living. Maybe not great, maybe not extravagant, but you can house and feed yourself. And, um, and that's what you'd have. But now imagine that the government engineers so much inflation that we say, okay, here, retiree, here's your social security payment. We're paying you the $3,000 we owe you. And that $3,000 will buy a loaf of bread and a pack of gum and nothing else. Right. So you can see how this is a huge problem. And basically what's going to happen is we will either default or there will be a stealth default engineered by inflation. And so if we look at what's happening in Washington, I would suggest to you that for some of the people who are financially literate and understand this, the current inflation rate and the gigantic amount of currency printing that's causing this inflation is for them not a bug, it's a feature. It's something that they need in order to have us not default. And so we've seen all of this before. And if you don't mind, I, I want to quote uh, Save It On Amos again, again from the Bitcoin standard. And what he wrote in that is uh, referring to ancient Roman times, because we do think history matters uh, in terms of understanding this. He wrote his inflationism intensified in the third and fourth centuries. With it came the misguided attempts of the emperors to hide their inflation by placing price controls on basic goods. Hey, wait, everyone, we've just heard the White House talking about placing price controls on energy, basic goods. huh? As market forces sought to adjust prices upward in response to the debasement of the currency, that's what I'm talking about, price ceilings prevented these price adjustments, making it unprofitable for producers to engage in production. Economic production would come to a standstill until a new edict allowed for the liberalization of prices upward. So what he's saying is that we can print currency and we can tell people you can't raise prices and that doesn't work. It's not effective. It sounds good. It sounds great to get in front of a TV camera and say, don't worry, we're going to send everybody checks and we're going to ensure that nobody can raise prices on you. But all that happens is people stop producing and the whole economy grinds to a halt. Uh, or you have a black market economy where people deal uh, surreptitiously and illegally, and the the legitimate economy comes to a halt until these things are adjusted. So Amos further wrote, it should be of interest to modern Keynesian economists, as well as to the present generation of investors, that though the emperors of Rome frantically tried to manage their economies, they only succeeded in making matters worse. Price and wage controls and legal tender laws were passed, but it was like trying to hold back the tides, excuse me, tides, rioting, corruption, lawlessness, and a mindless mania for speculation and gambling engulfed the empire like a plague. So I'll ask you, does that sound familiar to any of you? Have we seen any or all of that in recent years? Have we seen any or all of that this year? And by the way, we're, we're already seeing this in places like Peru, Egypt, Sri Lanka, where there are riots over food. The ability of, of countries to supply their people with, or, or for people to supply themselves with the basic necessities of life um, is already waning in parts of the world. And when that happens, there is uh, rioting and lawlessness and uh, a mindless mania. So these are the things that concern us. And we think we're already starting to see these effects. And if we don't find a better course, we may be seeing more of that in the United States. 
Pardon me. So, um, Dr. Glancy, any questions so far, or should we move on to talking about the Russian sanctions? No, I think um, the interesting views there and uh, assessments. Um, I think the folks probably interested in looking at the Russian sanctions. Um, I know some have been effective, some have not, and interested in your perspective on that and what makes them effective and uh, which aren't working and uh, having your thoughts on that. I think our audience would like that. Great, okay. So first, I, I will tell you that deep knowledge investing does not have uh, political opinions. Uh, of course, members of our board of advisors do, but the firm will only take two political opinions. We are in favor of free markets and free people. As a result, we believe that Russia should leave Ukraine and that Ukrainians should be free to chart their own course, for better or worse, that they should have uh, peace and self-determination. If we had our way, Russia would leave immediately. Um, so for anyone who's wondering what we think, we think Ukraine should be free. Beyond that, um, we are not accusing anybody in Washington of bad faith or bad intentions. We think the sanctions uh, mean well. And so let's talk about the first of those sanctions and why we think Washington's good intentions are actually dangerous and creating a national security issue. The first thing we did, uh, the United States by we, is freezing the Russian dollar reserves. And so for people who aren't familiar with this, Russia held uh, some of their, their, foreign, their wealth in foreign banks in the form of US dollars. And the reason they would do that is one, as a store of value, but two, they use it to pay their bills um, because countries have to exchange money when goods and services get exchanged. And so um, many countries will hold gold or US dollars or other currencies in foreign banks. And so if you look at it from the point of view of the US government, we said, wait a minute, the Russians are using this money to finance their war against Ukraine, why don't we just cut off their flow uh, of dollars, not allow them access to this money, and that will impair their ability to wage war. And if you think about it, that makes sense to a certain extent. And it's you can see why we're not accusing anybody in the government here of bad faith. But the problem with that is what we effectively did is communicated to the rest of the world that your dollar reserves are only useful to the extent that you stay in the good graces of Washington, D.C. And the problem with that is that Washington, D.C. changes hands every four to eight years. And so it's very hard for other countries to be consistently in the good graces of Washington, D.C. Now, if we go back to the earlier part of this talk, I hope I was able to convince some of you that the strength of the dollar and the dollar status as the world's reserve currency, which allows us to export dollars instead of goods and services, um, why this is so important for our security. And so by communicating to the rest of the world that their foreign reserves in dollars are no longer useful, um, unless they stay in the good graces of Washington, that's... Uh, that destroys the value of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. Dr. Glancy, can I ask you, uh, the video looks frozen on my end. Is Do we still have a good connection here? Oh, we're still, I'm still hearing you fine. 
So okay. it does, yeah, it did look freeze for a second here on mine. I, I saw it freeze a little bit, but it, it, it is moving, or it, the sound is, uh, so I think we're going okay. All right, terrific, thank you. So what Russia did, their response was they decided, okay, well, we have oil and gas, Europe needs oil and gas, we will no longer take dollars. We'll take rubles, gold, or Bitcoin for oil and gas. And Europe, of course, first said, no, we won't do that. Our contracts specify dollars. And then the Russians said, well, then we won't send you oil and gas. Europe needs energy. As, as Dr. Glantz, as you pointed out, every country needs energy. It's a necessary good. Uh, and eventually Europe folded and said, okay, we'll pay you in rubles. Um, and what happened was at the beginning of the war, because the United States took certain actions to sanction Russia, the value of the ruble against the dollar fell by 80%. And so we were thinking, this is great. We're super effective. The problem is that once Russia decided, well, fine, you want oil and gas, pay us in rubles, we won't accept dollars anymore. It created less demand for dollars and a corresponding increase in demand for rubles. And at this point, the Russian currency recovered all immediate war losses and at some point actually was trading at a stronger position against the dollar. So our sanctions ended up decreasing the value of the dollar, increasing the value of the ruble. And now we actually have broken the petrodollar system. And this is what we talked about earlier, where in the early 1970s, the United States arranged for all oil purchases to be made in dollars, which creates worldwide demand for dollars. And right now there are negotiations. Uh, the Chinese are negotiating with the Saudis to price dollars in their local currencies. And I assure you, if they do that, other countries will want to start pricing oil and their local currencies. And so instead of actually hurting the Russians, what we did was impair the value of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. We reduced the demand for the dollar. We increased demand for the ruble and we broke the petrodollar system. These are not effective sanctions, despite the fact that we think people meant well when they designed them. Uh, the second sanction that we think is worth talking about was denial of access to the SWIFT system. So for everybody listening in who's not familiar with the SWIFT system or thinks it's, it's confusing, um, it's actually really simple. It is simply a text messaging system that banks use to confirm that funds have been sent or will be sent, right? So imagine Dr. Glancy, we agree that I owe you $10 now on you know, the bet for the baseball game and I send you a text message saying, you know, Dr. Glancy, I've sent you your $10. And you reply, yes, I've received the $10. And we agree, okay, this is great. And that's all SWIFT is. It's a messaging system. And the United States runs that system to our advantage. Well, the Russians said, okay, fine. We don't have access to the SWIFT system. You know what they did? They moved to the Chinese system. And people said, well, the Chinese system, it's smaller. It's not as robust. It's not as good. There aren't as many banks attached to it. Well, guess what? Uh, it's a messaging system. These systems are scalable. And we just handed the Chinese a gigantic amount of extra volume on their system. We weakened the payment system that the United States runs and controls. And we strengthened the Chinese system that the Chinese run and control. But the Russians are fine. The third thing we did, we tried to crash their credit card system. So you know, Visa and MasterCard and American Express said, hey, guess what? Your systems aren't going to work. Apple Pay said, your systems aren't going to work. 
And do do any of you remember early on how much fun and exciting it was to see that when Apple turned off the Apple Pay systems, do you remember seeing the lines in the Russian subway system, right? They, they got all jammed up. Nobody could pay for their subway rides. And we looked at that and we said, ah, we got you. Well, guess what? It took about two days and Russia called the Chinese. The Chinese sent over union pay cards. So now Russian consumers, they had a few days of inconvenience when it took a long time to get onto the subway. But now, instead of making their purchases on Visa and MasterCard and American Express, which again, are systems run and controlled by US-based companies, where we have some sort of oversight and where our companies are taking those profits, we just handed that business to the Chinese. And so some of the people listening will be saying, wait a minute, but we shouldn't be doing business with the Russians. The Russians are bad people. They shouldn't be invading Ukraine. Okay. All great points. Again, we want Russia out of Ukraine too. But the problem is that these sanctions haven't damaged Russia. They haven't hurt Russia. What they've done is they've weakened the, the dollar. They've weakened our strength. And what we've done is instead of hurting the Russians, we've weakened ourselves to the benefit of Chinese systems. And that's what concerns us. Our issue is not that the sanctions aren't well-meaning, it's that they're poorly designed and are reducing the value of the dollar and handing strength and, and transaction volume to the Chinese. Um, over the weekend, it was announced that we will not be buying Russian gold. Uh, Dr. Glancy, another quiz for you. Um, do you know what Russian gold is? Um. I just think there's just probably gold. I don't know that there's, I mean, gold that Russia owns, but. Yeah. Right. There, there, there isn't Russian gold. So here's, here's what's happening. The United States has designed these ineffective sanctions against Russia, and we've been joined by our European allies in NATO. And, you know, good for them. They, they're, they're good allies. And like our government, they're trying to act well and in good faith and to try to protect the people of Ukraine. Again, we think these people mean well, but there are approximately 150 countries in the world, some with incredibly large economies like Brazil, India, and China that haven't joined us in these sanctions. So here's what's going to happen. Fine. We won't buy Russian gold. Well, the Indians will buy Russian gold. The Chinese will buy Russian gold. The Brazilians will, at which point the gold can be melted report and somebody puts another stamp on it it's no longer russian gold congratulations it is just gold and so what we have here is just more ineffective grandstanding uh there isn't russian gold there's just gold and there's the sense in the western media that the whole world is aligned against russia and it would be great if everybody took the same stand that we did because again we want ukraine to be free and independent but 150 countries haven't joined us the world has not aligned itself against Russia. The world is trying to get on with business as usual. And whether that's right or wrong is for their people to decide. But none of this is hurting the Russians. It is making us look weak, inconsistent, unreliable. And what it's doing, Dr. Glancy, is it's helping to split the financial system from a unipolar one where the United States held the great vast majority of economic power and influence. And again, we're talking about the ability to influence countries and people without using our military. And we've split the world now into a bipolar one 
where China went from a weaker position to now a much stronger position with access to more capital, access to more gold, access to more oil, access to a greater degree of transactions and more financial strength. And so we've just split the world at our own expense. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, I do think some of my own view that the sanctions, some of the sanctions, because they're not, they're exporting, but they're not importing. Um, you know, I think some of those, I think there's been some damage and we're going to see some damage to the Russian economy as time goes on. Um, but I take your points. I think, you know, the use of sanctions, um, we want them to be effective. We need to think about the second, third order effects. And often folks in Washington don't think strategically. Um, that's something at IWP we try to encourage uh, using the different instruments of statecraft together, but then also thinking through the second, third order effects. And I think that's, you know, something where, you know, you're pointing out some of those areas where um, there's been cascading effects. And sometimes it may be uh, important to, for signaling for policy reasons, but you should have a clear understanding of those implications and effects. And oftentimes in Washington, that debate doesn't happen. So. Yeah, that I, I couldn't agree with you more. That's that is exactly what's happening here. Um, and and you're right that some of this has created a certain amount of discomfort and inconvenience and financial stress on the Russian people. Um, but I, I think, you know, Vladimir Putin pointed out earlier that the willingness of the Russian people to endure a certain amount of discomfort for something that they see right or wrong they see it as being in their national self-interest to pursue this strategic military action which were you know which is a war um their ability to withstand that discomfort for something they see as in their national self-interest may be greater than americans willingness to endure that discomfort and high inflation um and lack of strength and wealth um, for something where the average American may not feel as tied to the results of this. Their willingness to endure that discomfort may exceed ours. Yeah, and that of the Europeans as well. I mean, they're having even more inflation and uh, their energy issues are uh, more dire than ours even, so. Right, right, because they get more of their energy from Russia and you know, you can deal with a certain amount of discomfort in the summer and people can reduce their, you know, their travel by car, but in the winter, they're going to need to heat the place. Yeah. So um, we do think there have been some sanctions that have been effective and they've been the private ones. You know, we think Boeing and Airbus have been incredibly effective. They said to the Russians, you know what, no more airplane parts for you. And I think some people haven't thought about the implications of that. Russia is an enormous country. Um, I have a friend who, who grew up there and she's an American citizen now. And I asked her, I said, well, wait a minute, you, know, you guys have a decent train system. How long does it take to get from one end of the country to the other on the train? She said two weeks, right? So I think it's 11 time zones. Yeah, it's it's. It's enormous, right? The United States stretches across four time zones, the continental United States, right? We, we've got four major time zones. As you said, they have 11. So once the airplanes they have in existence 
uh, are no longer able to be maintained because they can't get a hold of replacement parts, that's going to ground their commercial air fleet. That's a problem for them. Um, you know, other sanctions that have been effective, we've seen other transportation technology companies that decided to stop doing business with Russia. And, you know, we think about the discomfort that we have when we go to the airport and, you know, we have to deal with the TSA and the, the different x-ray machines and the body scanners and all of that. Well, that equipment needs to be maintained. And without that, without that equipment being properly maintained, the Russians are going to be left with two choices, assuming they have aircraft that will fly. One is to be, one is to reduce the amount of pre-flight screening they do and just let people walk on. The other is going to be to start hand searching everybody uh, personally and going through their luggage by hand. And so, you know, we think about the discomfort of having to show up to the airport three hours early and stand in long TSA lines. And, you know, we, we put our hands up, we get scanned with the body scanners, we run our baggage to the x-ray machine. And, you know, it's for better or worse, the system that we have, but try to imagine a, a system where you're standing in line and the TSA has to hand search every person. They have to open up every bag and start going through it because that stuff isn't working. I think that's where we can create an enormous amount of discomfort. And, and I would just add that I think some of the government sanctions are making it difficult in helping businesses in the private sector, even if, I mean, there's some formal sanctions, but also um, the secondary um, that are encouraging the private sector to take these actions, which are, as you say, you know, going to be more effective uh, in some ways for against the Russian economy. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And, you know, one of the things that we'd love to talk about here is people uh, have been complaining for years about the level of integration and how close the United States government is with some of our large corporations. And, you know, on, on one side of the aisle, we have people complaining that um, platforms like Twitter and Facebook basically are the government arm of enforcing First Amendment violations. The government can't limit speech, but these corporations do in a way that the government wants. And so people on one side of the aisle complain and they say, wait a minute, these corporations are too close to the government. And on the other side of the aisle, they say, wait a minute, the big banks, right? Wall Street is they've got all this influence. They're certainly benefiting from Federal Reserve actions. Uh, and they say, this is, this is ridiculous. These corporations shouldn't be so close. People have talked about the revolving door between Wall Street and positions in the Federal Reserve or the Treasury Department. Um, these are all valid complaints of the American system and the, the tightness of our government and our corporations. But right now is the time, Dr. Glancy, when we can take advantage of that. Right now is the time for the US government to take advantage of its close relationships with its corporations and work with them to find ways to effectively sanction the Russians in ways that deny them goods and services that they want and they need, but don't necessarily impact the value of the US dollar and don't hurt the value of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. This is where we should be leaning on those relationships. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, a lot of, you know, the government contractors and government, um, you know, carrying out even for the military and other aspects of uh, the government relies on the private sector. And we actually have a course at IWP on public-private partnerships. And, you know, some of the challenges, some of the problems, but some ways 
um, that they're effective, and then how can they be more effective, I think. Um, so, I mean, that's certainly an area as well where understanding what's going on and how we can actually be more effective um, is uh, important. And I think, you know, there's a lot of, uh, one of the reasons we don't do well with kind of the economic statecraft is we have these views about sort of the private sector is the private sector, the government's the government, never should the two cross. And I think in some areas, that's uh, a good policy, but for international um, strategy and international uh, things like sanctions, you have to understand that. You have to have people in government who understand the implications of the sanctions um, and how private sector will be, they're the ones who are often impacted and how they can either be you know, helpful or um, you know, how those sanctions, you know, countries may be able to get around those sanctions. So. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. Um, and our point all along has been we need effective sanctions. And frequently, that's not going to come with the big headline grabbing actions the U.S. government has taken. It's going to be with the government partnering with corporations and saying, hey, help us out here. And I think what we've seen is that U.S. corporations have been very much in favor of this. They've supported that effort and at times um, at great expense. For them. And so they are civic minded in this way. And this is the time to lean on those relationships. So what I'd love to do now is, is sum up by talking for a few minutes about how the combination of policies that we've been talking about, the overprinting of the currency, the debasement of our currency, the sanctions that have reduced the value of the dollar as the world's reserve currency. We want to talk about how these policies uh, are creating harm to US national security, because while I'm focused on the stock markets and you know, while we're very effective in helping people get better returns, uh, IWP, you're focused on statecraft and national security. And so let's talk about why these things matter. Um, and so first of all, just their original point is that a weak dollar caused by inflation and currency debasement that ensures we won't have a functioning economy or society. And we need that. We need that to project strength. And we need that in the event that we do need to deploy the military. Somebody has to pay for that. And, and that's how it's going to happen. And in our view, one great example of this is Argentina. Um, I travel a lot. And a few months ago, I was in Peru. I was in Arequipa, which is a charming city. And I was having dinner. Um, somewhere. And the person next to me was a doctor from Buenos Aires. And he and I struck up a conversation and we happened to be, he asked what I, what I wrote on. And I, I told him, you know, we've been dealing a lot with macroeconomic issues, inflation, uh, stagflation that we'd been shorting the market. And I knew he was from Buenos Aires. And he said that he didn't want to return there. And I said, why? He said, because inflation means life there is unlivable. And he talked about how 40% inflation means that nothing can get done. And so I, I was curious about their mortgage market, their housing market, because how do you price this? How do you get a mortgage? And so I said, well, when you go to buy a house, how does that work? And, and he laughed at me, he said, you can't buy a house. And I, you know, with my own point of view, thought, what, what do you mean you can't buy a house? That doesn't make sense. Of course you can buy a house. It just may be hard or expensive. And I said, well, no, hold on. 
that doesn't make sense. Well, no, when you go to buy a house, how do you get the mortgage? How do they price it? He said, no, you don't understand. He said, you can't buy a house. And he was right. I didn't understand. And what he explained to me is that the Argentinian government used to guarantee mortgages. And I think they had a mortgage rate in the neighborhood of 12%. And Dr. Glancy, I'll point, to, point out to you that we have people in the real estate market panicking right now because our mortgage rates have gone from 3% to 6%. They were at 12% for 50% of the value of the house. In the United States, a typical mortgage amount is 80% of the value of the house. And what happened was they the government had enormous losses on this because when you're getting a 12% return and your inflation is 40%, people were paying back their mortgage in Argentinian pesos that had very little value. And the government lost a fortune on this and the banks put the losses on the government. And for anybody who remembers back to 2008, hey, that's what happened here. The bank losses in many cases got transferred to the government, right? And that's what happened in Argentina. And so they shut down these programs. And so in Argentina, if you want a mortgage, you cannot get one. Those programs are not available. If you want to buy a house, you have to pay for it in cash. So now just think for a minute about, we have roughly 350 million Americans, about 110 million or so households in this country. And so think about what happens to all those people in a scenario where you can only buy a house if you can pay cash. That's it. No more mortgage market. This is a big deal. These things are important. And for anybody listening to this, and thank you for your time and attention, but for anybody listening to this who thinks, oh, you know, this is Wall Street's problem. This is Washington's problem. These are, you know, these issues that are far away. No, no, these issues are going to affect all of us. And it will be a big deal when people can't afford to buy a house or there's just no ability to buy a house. Um, we also want to point out that a non-debased hard currency, when we talk about a hard currency, that frequently means gold-backed. It's a prerequisite for savings, investment, and building businesses. Without that, the government controls your property rights. For everyone listening to this, I want you to think about however much money you have in your bank account. You have a certain amount of money. And if the government decides to print more currency, they don't have to... to knock on your door and say, write us a check. They don't have to, to go to the bank and steal your money. They can just inflate that value away. Without a hard currency, the government controls your property rights. And this is a big deal for freedom, for commerce, for people's ability and willingness to start businesses, to create value. Um, and for everybody here, if you think you're still free, wait until the government issues a central bank digital currency. Because when that happens, they'll decide when you can spend money, what you can spend it on, and they can use a Chinese-style social credit system to determine whether you get to keep your money or how you use it. Again, this does not happen with hard currency. The ability of the government to control currency is what led to the fall of every empire before ours. And these, this is indeed a national security issue. It will affect our homes, our prosperity. And so if you understand all of this, what you can see is how currency debasement will weaken the U.S. economy and make it impossible for people to store value, to pass value onto their children. It, it makes it impossible to save money or to start a business or to buy a home. 
And so if we have a weaker U.S. economy combined with a Chinese-led alternative financial system that's gaining power because of the actions of our government, what we have is a system that limits non-military use of foreign policy, influence, and soft power. Basically, what it means is that our ability to get things done without deploying the military, which is expensive and harmful and gets people hurt, uh, is limited. And if anybody wants to see how much all of this really matters, please imagine what happens when China decides to invade Taiwan. The Chinese have made it clear it's not an if. What they term as reunification is going to happen. Um, and so my question is, what do we do then? Because we can't bring the full might of the U.S. military to bear against a nuclear power that can retaliate. So that option is not on the table. So people are thinking, okay, wait a minute. We can sanction China like we did to Russia, right? So let's think about that for a minute. And we can sum this up into really simple situations. If we try to sanction China, at that point, China will control Taiwan Semiconductor, which is the best chip manufacturer on the planet. Intel is a marvelous company, but Taiwan Semi it does a better job in terms of actual manufacturing. Intel is phenomenal at design uh, and good at production, but Taiwan Semi is the best manufacturing company in the world. China will control it. There's no question about that. And so I'm, I'm going to ask you, Dr. Glancy, I know you have a substantial number of very high-level military people who are listening to this call and who are closely tied to IWP. Um, and perhaps at some point we can ask them to take a look into our weapons guidance systems, um, our our defense guidance systems, our computers, our communication systems, um, our military hardware, our planes, right? And, and ask them how many of those key national security pieces of hardware and computers have chips made by Taiwan Semiconductor in them. Because at some point, the US military is going to either need chips that are made locally, or we're going to be depending on the Chinese to send us the chips we need to keep our military functional. Um, if I were in charge in Washington, and, and again, I've told you we're in favor of free markets. I, I'm not in favor of the government being involved in the economy, but this is a national security issue. If I were in charge in Washington, I would be on the phone with Taiwan Semiconductor right now. I'd be offering them land, a no tax deal, and ask them one question. How many visas and green cards do you need for your engineers here? Because you can't get here soon enough. Uh, I would love it if Intel, Samsung, and Qualcomm were all manufacturing, building manufacturing plants here right now, because we're going to need it. Our military is going to need it. This again, isn't just an economic issue. This is a national security issue. The second thing that will happen if we try to financially, economically sanction China when they invade Taiwan is China controls 90% of our pharmaceutical supply. That is staggering. So no chips, no drugs. If we try to sanction China, they can literally say, okay, we kill grandma. And I, I don't mean to be flippant, or silly about it, but imagine a situation where, you know, our, our people who are on medications can't get them. 90% of our pharmaceutical supply 
comes from China. We need to have domestic manufacturing. There's no other way around it. I understand that will be more expensive, um, but this is this is not just a national security issue. This is a humanitarian issue um, because we can't be at the mercy of the Chinese for our pharmaceutical supply. Or alternatively, um, when China invades Taiwan, we're not going to be able to attack them militarily. We're not going to be able to sanction them financially because they control the supply of two things that we desperately need. Um, I just conclude by saying a strong currency, a growing economy, and limits on government control over the monetary supply are a necessary condition for us to exercise the influence that we want to use to counter Russia and Chinese influence. And to act otherwise limits our options, our influence, and is, as we've said multiple times today, a national security concern. Great. Really appreciate uh, your thoughts and comments today. That was uh, very interesting and hopefully thought-provoking for our audience. Uh, gave me some more stuff to think about as well. Um, but it's, you know, I think in Washington, Russia, the Russian actions in Ukraine, um, some of the highlights about how interconnected and interdependent the trade is, and some of the things that um, you know the Russians and Ukraine have, because of the conflict, um, have impacted international markets in the U.S. Uh, directly. Um, I think people in Washington are waking up to it a bit. It's certainly um, something that's a little too little, a little too late uh, for thinking about um, you know the, the that we need to think about supply chains and. Um, you know, the defense industrial base in a more serious way. We need to think seriously about sanctions and the overuse of those. Um, you know, a few years ago, the uh, Europeans were looking at a mechanism to try to get around the dollar to do trade with Iran when the U.S. Uh, imposed sanctions back on Iran. I think if that had happened, that would have been a serious breach with our allies and something that... Um, would have uh, really been detrimental to U.S. national security. You know, certainly the rise of Russia and the China um, system. Uh, I think there's some limits on that. I'm a little more sanguine about the situation than I think you are, um, just because China and Russia have uh, significant problems and and uh, in enacting in, in sort of uh, counter currency, but. But I do take your points that it's uh, these are things that we need to think about, and um, certainly uh, the the overuse of sanctions, ineffectual sanctions, um, you know, trying to ensure a strong economy and strong dollar. As you say, that's the best way to be able to ensure that we compete, and uh, that was one of the strengths we had against the Soviet Union uh, during the Cold War. If we're in some other type of competition newish Cold War, um, that's going to be really important, and we're going to need to get that right as well. So. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you. And and you're right. Um, the Chinese and the Russians, they're, they're not invincible. They certainly have their own problems. Um, and, you know, it's possible on some of this. Maybe I'm sounding the alarm a little early. Uh, I, I think the thing that I would counter with is that we're already a quarter of a quadrillion dollars in debt. And uh, at this point, that that is something that needs to be 
addressed. And, you know, one of the things that we've looked at here, I was reading a study um, in the fourth quarter of last year that um, there's a study that showed 775 historical fiat currencies, every one of them became worthless. Um, They all go to zero. And again, for people listening in, a fiat currency is simply a government controlled currency like the dollar or the ruble or the Argentinian peso or the euro. Um, The average life expectancy, expectancy for a fiat currency is 27 years. The two oldest standing in the world right now are the British pound at 327 years and the US dollar at 229 years. But for anybody who thinks, hey, that's great. You know, these currencies have lasted hundreds of years with an average of 27, we're doing pretty well. I would point out to you that in that time, the British pound has lost 99% of its value, right? And we talked earlier about the devastating effect that inflation has on people's savings and on their standard of living. Um, In the United States, the dollar has lost 96% of its value since 1800. Uh, We believe the real inflation rate right now is in the mid-teens, more like 15, 16%, as opposed to the 8.5% that the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics says it is. And so, you know, take that uh, loss of 96% of its value, and we're going to take another 15% out of that this year, or sorry, out of what's left. Right. It's, it's not going to be negative, but, um, you know, we just like to see a return to sound money. Um, and, I, you know, I hope it's not too late. And you're absolutely correct that the Russians and Chinese are not invincible. They have their own problems. Um, as an American, I'd like to see us address ours. No, very good. And we shouldn't be giving them any uh, wins or anything for, for you know, any, uh, <laughs> we shouldn't be helping them uh, with our, uh, own mistakes. So that's, uh, I certainly, you know, uh, agree with that as well. So, but uh, really a pleasure to have you here today. I think we've uh, actually are a little bit over our five o'clock uh, time slot here. Um, and I don't think that we have any external questions. So um, again, it's a pleasure. I uh, really appreciate your views. Um And again, for those who are interested in learning more about uh, the Institute, uh, hope you will uh, be able to join us uh, or see more about our programs and how you could uh, support IWP at iwp.edu. And again, thank you again uh, to Mr. Gary Brody for his thought-provoking remarks today. Dr. Glancy, thank you so much for having me. Uh, I also want to thank the, the IWP, uh, Dr. Lenchowski. Um, it's, it's been a pleasure speaking. And I think, with, he's, I think he was watching, so that's great. To... Oh, well, terrific. Thank you for making the time then. Um, but it's been a pleasure speaking with all of you. I, I love what you guys are doing, and I'm so glad that you're training the, the next generation of um, people who will be practicing statecraft on our behalf. Thanks so much. And with that, I think we're done today. Thank you. Thank you.